This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Mara. I'm a professor of management here at the Wharton School. And I'm a shareholder at Ogletree Deacons in the Philadelphia office. Which means you're a lawyer. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, welcoming Dan back from another week at the spa. Looking great, Dan. Fabulous. Feeling great, Peter. <laughs> great to be back. We're going to talk about a number of fascinating things uh, today. Later in the show, we're going to talk about... Uh, big data, people analytics, and what's happening there, how you might use this stuff if you're an executive or you hope to be one. We're going to talk about what has happened to wages, why they're not going up in the U.S., and review all the evidence on that. We're going to talk about the latest uh, sex scandal, I suppose, yes. or the Harvey Weinstein thing, and what uh, we might learn from that more broadly. Uh, but first, as a way of getting started, the show started. We're going to go to work. It's time to go to work. Time to make the donuts. Pleasure to have Justin Smith with us. Justin's an entomologist. Brendan Harris. Brendan was a professional baseball player. Joe Murray, who's a detective here in the city of Philadelphia. Time to go to work. So, folks, this is a segment of the show we do every once in a while where we talk about what it's like to do a job that maybe you've had some contact with, but you don't really know what goes on behind the scenes. And today, it's a pleasure to have Amy Kurzban with us. Amy is the Creative Director of Operations for the Philadelphia Orchestra. I think that's a fancy name for saying the person who makes things happen. Amy, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Do, do I have that about right? You are the person who makes everything go? Yeah, I uh, I manage the things. We joke in the office that the personnel managers manage the people, and I manage all the things. Ah, cool. Nice. Very, very nice. cool. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you how you got started being the person in charge of things. When you were a kid, did you, like, have play sets and you were putting stuff away all the time? You'd come into a messy room and just clean it up? Was that? Let me organize for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was always the party planner. I was always uh, making, like, parties for myself and, and planning to get everybody together and work, orchestrating which restaurant we were going to go to and yeah. who was going to drink and when. And everyone always turned to me to make the plans. So I oh. think it was destined. Okay, very cool. And literally the career path before doing this at the Philadelphia Orchestra, what were you doing? Uh, immediately before this, I was actually the assistant production manager for the Kimmel Center. Oh, so okay. um, right place, right time, a lot, of, a lot of theater careers tend to be. So I was the production manager for the orchestra and recently got promoted to the director of operations. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, so five years here in the Kimmel Center. And before that, I was a freelance stage manager in the New York area and then um, came mm. down here to Philly. Okay, very cool. So let's talk a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes at the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I should say that as soon as we finish this show, I'm dashing on the subway down to the orchestra concert at 7.30. He's not saying he's dashing. I am going. Yes, I'm going to see West Side Story. Uh, So if there's you know, a special entrance you could make for me as I come down there. Sure. You know, it'll be, Red carpet it is. Yeah, we'll talk after the after the show here. Perfect. So what kinds of things go on behind uh, the scenes? We want to talk about uh, trips as well, but let's talk about when the orchestra is at home. Uh, first, is there anything different about this orchestra, what happens behind the scenes, and is it different than what happens at other musical events or 
you know, what, what, what goes on behind the scenes for the orchestra that might be unusual compared to other shows? Well, this orchestra uh, tends to stretch itself pretty, not thin is the wrong word, but um, we, we do elaborate plans throughout the entire year. I mean, we just came off of a collaborative learning week where we were in the neighborhood doing things in a sensory-friendly concert. Oh, so there's okay. a lot of stuff that's going on constantly. You know, we do the touring in the summer. Yep. Every week is a different program, so we're always trying to advance the next week of stuff, and personnel is hiring the players that we need to have, and um, and it's just very active. We're a very okay. active orchestra, okay. I think, probably more so than, than some others. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about making trips. Some of these trips that you've taken are really serious ones, right? You went to, was your most recent trip to Europe? Was that the... Uh, Europe is most... coming up this summer. Okay. Uh, yeah. This past year, we were in Asia, so we were we did uh, Hong Kong, oh, sorry, we did Shanghai, Beijing, Mongolia, wow. Seoul, mm. and um, I ended my trip in, in Hong Kong with a small group. And how many people are on this... Uh, excursion when you go the orchestra group is how big so we have 95 musicians that yeah. are contracted and then we have to bring additional substitutes and then staff so we're right. probably about 120 to 150 depending on where we're going and and wow. how much of the group that we're taking so it's a big uh, undertaking to move everybody from one place to another yeah so you the gates on time wow you moving 120 people at once what if somebody's got to go to the bathroom for example do you stop the whole thing we have someone <laughs> in the back we call the sweeper and they wait behind until that person's ready do to they go. really no kidding yeah. oh no kidding wow yeah. so it's kind of like like, do, do people have to wear bus badges that say, you know... Sometimes yeah. I think we should get a tow rope and just make them hold on to it. <laughs> We've talked about matching hats so we can all identify each other. Um, no, but fortunately, uh, the majority of our musicians are pretty self-reliant and pretty yeah. self-sufficient. So, uh, you know, we'll say, okay, we're, we're getting off the bus here, and then we'll meet you at the yeah. gate. And we kind of do a little head count as we get on the plane and stuff like that. Uh, but seriously, you do have to move a lot of people. Do, do they... And do you move them all together? So if you're going, you know, first stop is is Shanghai, and you're going, let's say, Philadelphia, San Francisco, San Francisco to Shanghai. Are you all on the same flight? For the most part, they have the option of taking their own flights. Okay. Uh, I would say maybe over 50% choose to take the, the group flight. Okay. It ends up being easier to travel because we um, organize buses from one place to another in terms so. of from the airport, right, to the hotel. Yeah. So it's just kind of one of those things where you tag along versus making your own plans and renting your own car and, yeah. and all that. So, yeah, when we do the big um, flights, you know, transcontinental, we're uh, traveling probably about 60 deep, if not more. Yeah. Uh, and some of the other musicians will take the same flight or, or, you know, get to the airport separately and then meet up with us. Okay. Uh, what's it like to travel with a group of world-class musicians? They're all on the bus together. Do they sing songs? They sing 99 <laughs> bottles of beer on the wall. I mean, what do they, what do, they do? Um, I would say on the way to places, they're usually kind of quiet. On the way home, let's say like a run out to Carnegie, we're on a train together. Yep. Everyone's a little bit more enthusiastic to get back to Philly uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and happy to get home. Uh -huh. um, it's interesting to watch the social dynamics between people break off into groups and how uh -huh. they segregate and, and move together and choose to sit together or not. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always different seating charts and things like that to try and keep everything fair mm -hmm. and um, orchestrate all of the people. So uh, when you say seating charts, this means like getting on the train and stuff? Who gets which tick which seats? Yeah, yeah, our planes, mm, okay. you know, just making sure that ah. everyone is accounted for and we have, you know, group um, seats ah. for us so that everyone ah. ha is kind of in the same area so we can monitor everybody and make sure everyone's taken care ah. of. So do the woodwinds hang together and the <laughs> cellists hang together and they they... 
you know, mock the flutists and stuff? I mean, well, they definitely mock the violas. Do they? The most. Ah, yeah, that's that, okay. apparently that's the big joke. That's something I learned when I came to the orchestra. <laughs> that, that's the instrument that gets picked on the most, unfortunately. <laughs> they do tend to hang out in sections or, or instrument families. Sometimes there's a little break away from the pack. It's, um, huh. But no, I think there's a lot of different uh, friendships that formulate between all of the instruments and all the, I mean, you know, we're all people that that have different backgrounds and they've known each other for years, some of them, and some people have been in the orchestra way longer than others, and it's great to watch, actually. Mm -hmm. Folks, we're talking with Amy Kurzban, who's the Creative Director of Operations for the Philadelphia Orchestra. She's the person in charge of making stuff happen, Uh, and this is Thursday, October 12th, so we are live. If you've got a question for Amy about what it's like to travel with a big orchestra like that. You got a big family traveling and you want tips on how to do it. Uh, Amy's the person. Here's our number 1844 Wharton. That's 18449427866. So here's a question. If you're a cellist and you're flying to Shanghai, do you get a seat for your cello? Great question. We actually have a whole huge list of cargo because we have to bring all the percussion instruments as well. Okay. So they get shipped separately. Some of the musicians who have smaller um, instruments like flutes or um, even sometimes the French horns, but for sure the the smaller instruments, they will hand carry them if okay. they so choose. Yeah. Um, but the bigger instruments like the double bass and, and the cellos, they all get put in trunks and carried very safely and through all of the proper channels mm. and get all the proper paperwork to mm-hmm. make sure that we're, we're crossing all our T's and dotting our I's to get to where we're going. I imagine uh, some people are pretty compulsive about their instruments and oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean these things are uh, are priceless in so many different ways and yeah. and they have a lot of emotional attachment to them as well which makes perfect sense you know it's uh it's like the cinderella slipper like it's the yeah. perfect fit for that person and and it's painstaking the way they go and, and choose the instruments and, yeah. and how they get protected and stuff like that have you ever has an airline ever lost a tuba let's say you know <laughs> I don't think a tuba has been lost. <laughs> I, I think there was a story about a musician. I can't remember if they had left a violin in the overhead or oh, oh they they weren't able to get it into the overhead. That okay. was that was the issue. So yeah. we're very careful about getting to the gate on time to make sure that we get priority seating to get all of our violins and violas in the overhead cabins before um before everyone else gets their little travel packs with them. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about food on these trips, right? You got a group of 120. Uh, do you pass around a menu or something? I mean, 120 different uh, diets and things, and I imagine many people have little rituals they do before concerts and things, you know, that they... Yeah. Yeah? Uh, what do you do? For the most part, when we are in Asia, um, they have the freedom to go and do their meals on their own and then meet up with us in the concert halls. I would say that food's actually a little bit more difficult when we're doing runouts here in Philadelphia because there are a whole bunch of diets to worry about. You know, we always make sure there's a gluten-free option and a vegetarian option and whatever else, you know, like high-protein diet. Mm. I'm sure we're going to have a paleo add-on to the list. Yeah, right. right. Um, Well, let me ask you about that. What did you call that? The run out in Philadelphia? Oh, run out, yeah. yeah. What's that mean? Um, so, well, Carnegie's count as a run out. So anytime we're running out somewhere that's, you know, an hour or two away, okay. uh, we do an annual trip to um, D.C. generally. Uh, we either play at the Kennedy Center or, you know, we're going to Strathmore this year. Um, we also do an MLK concert at um, oh, the college. Uh, Gerard College. Okay. Um, you know, and those are little runouts. So we're in, we're not in Verizon, but we're still kind of okay. in the area. We're not flying across the the Atlantic or the Pacific. So is this? I wonder if you've ever had conversations with your colleagues at sports teams because they got, I'm sure, the same problems. Do they all have to show up at if you have a runout, let's say, to Carnegie Hall? 
Um, they all have to show up at the Kimmel Center and have to be by a certain time, and then you all get on the train together and go to New York? Is that yep, how that works? just right? like that. We have to coordinate okay. each of the movements because we make sure that everybody's accounted for and, okay. and, and the, yeah, the proper place at the proper time. Uh, did you ever leave anybody? Say, I'm sorry, we waited, no. but we're... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I've seen some close calls, but we, we manage to make sure everyone gets there, and, you know, we're in close communication. The staff is in close communication with each other, just uh-huh. making sure we facilitate getting everybody back onto buses or trains or airplanes or whatever it may be to make sure, you know, every once in a while, if someone gets ill and they have to spend a day longer in a city where we've left, we just um, make accommodations for them the following day. Okay. Um, Let me ask you about the rituals of an orchestra. So if we're in the audience uh, tonight, for example, you walk in there, there's the stage is kind of bare, and then people will walk out kind of one at a time, right? Yeah. Um, and is there a t- is there like a a gong or something in the back that uh, al- alerts people? Okay. 10 seconds left or something like that. They have to be on the stage by a particular time. Yeah, we have a little PA system. We have a five-minute call and then an onstage call, kind of similar to the bells that ring out in the lobby when you're a patron okay, uh, yeah. or a guest here at the Kimmel Center. So, yeah, we, we do a little, hey, everybody, you've got five minutes before you have to be on stage, and then okay. a call that says, okay, it's time. <laughs> okay. And yeah. what's going on behind, uh, behind the scenes here? We can't see, right? There's... Uh, off to this, I guess, if you're facing the stage, the left-hand side. What's back there? We can't see, but people it's come me. through the door. It's me every day. Oh, it's just you. Okay. <laughs> no, it's me, and, um, you know, we, we gather. So all the musicians get on stage with the onstage call, and then we wait until we have our concert master and our conductor of the week. And um, before we go, we wait until the house is ready, and then um, I call the lights to say, all right, let's do the, the okay. house lights and the announcement, and then we run the announcement. And each musician and each conductor has their own little ritual. Um, one of my favorites, I saw one of the conductors, I can't remember who now, but he would pull up his pants, pull up each sock separately, hmm. put his pants back down, and then jump three times. And that's how he got ready to go on stage. No kidding. Isn't that <laughs> cool? It's kind of yeah. like... That's what we do every every time before we come on the air. I'll <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> Check your socks and your pant legs. That was a, that was a secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no, cool. No, we have our own rituals here. Yeah, the Bob Martinis yeah. and things. <laughs> So, but but what are the play? So the players are back there. They're standing around mainly. Are they talking to each other? Are they playing games. What do they do? Yeah, in I would that say there's yeah. people who are consistently on stage, warming up. You know, fifteen okay. to twenty minutes before they're either on stage or backstage, or some of them are just kind of goofing around, or they're in the lounge making coffee. And um, oh. sometimes, you know, the really uh, studious ones are looking ahead to the next week to see what music they have to take home and practice oh, okay. for the following week. And, okay. Yeah, so it varies. There's a couple of musicians who have their very special spot, and they will only kind of hibernate in that spot until they go on stage. And ah. Yeah, it's, I would say it's pretty ritualistic back there. Okay, so then they're out on stage, uh, yep. and everybody's out there. Uh, walk us through what is going on at the very beginning. The concert, for folks who haven't been to an orchestra, uh, the first guy, person who walks out, who gets applause is whom? The concert master. And who is that? What, what do they do? David Kim, who's our concert master most of the time. We have a couple others when he is um, has the week off. And so he he has his own dressing room, and he comes out, and he is incredibly punctual and uh, 
and professional and is always there right on time. So as soon as the announcement plays, he walks out there, gets the applause, sits down, and uh, initiates the tuning of the orchestra. And what happens then? How do they, how do they tune? What, what happens? The principal oboist plays an A, mm-hmm. and they tune the winds and brass, and then they do a second A for the strings. And, and why do they, uh, how does this oboe guy get to be the big kahuna here? I know, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's, they've all worked really hard. I mean, these people spend hours and hours a day practicing. Uh-huh. It's just incredible. And our principal oboist has been in the orchestra for probably at least two, if not three decades, uh-huh. um, and has worked his way into that chair. So um, I think, is, is the idea that they tune to the instrument that's the hardest to tune? Like, if you have a piano out there, they tune to the piano, right? They do tune to the piano. And I, think, I wish I knew a concrete answer to that. I believe you're right. I'm going to say you're right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Dan, did you hear what she said? She said you're right? Yeah, thank you. Michelle, did you tape that? He's going to podcast that. that. Uh, on, on tape. Okay. I got it. Got it on tape. Excellent. Uh, so they're tuning up, and that lasts for a little while. And then everybody sits down. What happens next? And then our conductor, whoever it is, you know, uh, Yannick is our, our artistic director, and he's the guy that's here for the most of the season, but we get guest conductors throughout the season. Okay. So whoever's back there, they say, they usually are, are chatting backstage, and we sometimes have to, depending on who it is, kind of give them a nudge and say, oh, it's your time now. Okay. Right. <laughs> we open the door for them, whether they're picking up their socks or just goofing off, uh-huh. uh, and then they march out on stage to the conductor's podium. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. We're talking with Amy Kurzban, who's the creative director of operations of the Philadelphia Orchestra, the person who actually makes everything happen there. Let's talk a little bit about the audience, okay? You probably, right. in every concert, there's some people there who have never been to a concert before. If you're walking into an orchestra concert, do you have any tips for people on how to not screw up too much as a member of the orchestra? What do you um, what do you do? What shouldn't you do? I would say one of the things that we notice the most when we're backstage and always catches our ear is if somebody claps between movements. Yes. And right. there's this, I think mm. there's a trend, actually, that, that that may not be as uh, verboten as it once was. I think there might be a trend mm, starting to really? do that. But mm. I don't know. I, you know, we always kind of, our ears perk up when we hear applause. And, of course, yeah. I always panic and run to the side of the stage and saying, oh, my God, the piece is over. And my coworkers say, no, 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 it's just applause in the wrong place. So I sit back down. So how do you know? If you're in the orchestra, how do you know? I mean, you're in the audience. How do you know when not to applaud if you're not a musician, let's say? That's a great question because I've definitely made that mistake before. I think mm-hmm. I kind of like do the side eye for my neighbor and say, mm. is he bringing his arms yeah. up or is he yeah. waiting around? Look for um, somebody who thinks they know what, it looks exactly. like they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, you need an indicator. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, well, here's my tip anyway. You can, if you look at the program, yes. uh, you'll see how many movements there are. And mm-hmm. so you can count, right, uh, how many times the orchestra stops. And uh, if there are three movements and they've stopped three times, then it's time to applaud. Isn't it easier to just wait and see if everybody else is applauding? Yeah, but if everybody does that, Dan, if everybody did that, yeah. what would happen? <laughs> see, would happen. I have the timings of each of the pieces, so I wait to see how close ah, yeah. are until the end of the piece. And yeah. then I, I say, no, we've got ten more minutes. Yeah. Stop clapping. Amy, let me ask, is the work in the Philadelphia Orchestra full-time for most of the musicians, or is it just one of many gigs they have? Um, for the most part, it's full time. Uh, some of them teach, um, you know, either at Curtis or Temple or, or uh, New York. Some of them, for, but practicing takes up a lot of their free time. So we have rehearsals Tuesday, two rehearsals Wednesday, and one Thursday morning, and then concerts Thursday night. So mm-hmm. they get four rehearsals before they're on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so they spend a lot of the other time at home practicing their part. Mm-hmm. 
Let me say one more question about being in the audience, and then we'll get back to what the or- orchestra players do and stuff. Suppose you have to cough, and you're in the audience. What do you do? Oh, I think it depends on where you're sitting. If you're mm. near a door, you just run. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it happens, you know, especially in the winter when it's cold and flu season. Yeah. There's nothing that can be done. And usually the conductors are pretty patient about that. And if you can hold it between movements, it's it's re- recommended. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, But often they won't start if somebody's coughing, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've seen conductors wait until, you know, all the sneezing and, and cough drops mm-hmm. have been unwrapped and things like that. And if your cell phone should go off, you, you really should just shoot yourself, right? Well, in the orchestra, if your cell phone goes off in a rehearsal, you have to buy everyone donuts. So Is I that true? The same thing should hold true for the audience. <laughs> With 4,000 people there. Well, how's this for a tip? <laughs> your cell phone goes off, and you just look very angrily at the person behind you. Oh, yeah. And you don't Ooh. get it yourself. Oh, excellent, Dan. <laughs> Dan's high on the ethical scale. Yeah. Oh, so, so that is the that is the rule, huh? You got a rule that if your phone goes off, you have to buy donuts for everybody. It is. I'm not sure if that's common in any other orchestra, but in no our orchestra, kidding. that's the case. Boy, Those are my favorite cool. days. Yeah. Uh, are there any other uh, little rituals like that that the orchestra has? Um, there are strange things in different pieces that have developed over the years. Mm. There's one piece where there's a harp solo, and a long, long time ago, someone dropped their keys huh. um, while the harp was playing their solo. And so now it's the tradition that every time that harp solo comes up, somebody inevitably will um, accidentally, in quotes, drop their keys. No kidding. So they're goofing on the harpists? How dare they? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, well, let me ask you about that. Do these folks, uh, I mean, I know they take this work very seriously, but they're kind of more lighthearted than we might think, or what do you think? Yeah. There are some people that I've gotten to know very well, I mean, especially because I've been in the in the building for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some people who keep more to themselves and are a little bit more reserved. But the more I get to know these guys, the more, I don't want to say regular Joes, but the more just, they're people, just they're intricate mm-hmm. and interesting mm-hmm. and um, have a lot of opinions for sure. Um, and, and they're all warm-hearted and, and they really mean... Well, and I think if anyone came across them in a restaurant, um, you know, they they would be undercover. You wouldn't even know. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's no not a lot of pretension, which I think is great about this. Yeah, they're not ensemble. Yeah. Is there a, a difference? Could you pick out the difference between an orchestral player and a soloist if you Ooh. sort of sort of saw them on the street? I don't think so. I mean, backstage here we can just because of where their dressing rooms are, but. No. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it depends on the soloist, too. I mean, Manny Axe, who was just here, Emmanuel Axe was here, and he is by far the nicest man I've ever met in my wow, entire life, nice. whether musician or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and same goes for a lot of our players. And then you get other soloists, who I will not name, mm. who are a little bit more standoffish <laughs> and uninterested in, in getting to know anybody backstage and yeah. kind of doing their own thing. And you never know if it's nerves or... I, I mean, I try not to take it personally, but... Yeah. <laughs> and ab- after the concert... Um, how does the orchestra? I mean, there's got to be some nights where they feel they really kind of nailed it, and other mm-hmm. nights when they feel they don't. Um, can you tell when they the concert's over? Yeah, you can generally tell. Mm. Um, more often, it's whether or not they enjoy the program that yeah. they're playing, and yeah. and that varies from person to person. But uh, a lot of times, when Yannick is directing, they're they're more happy uh, than some of the other guest conduct- yeah. conductors, and it just depends on the program, like I said. Yeah. So uh, sometimes you see them come off stage with their heads kind of. All right, we're mm. going to go home, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, oh, let's go to the bar and celebrate. Yeah, so. ah. yeah he's more ebullient, you might say, than, yeah. than most. Yeah. Good word. 
but here, you know, I keep I keep thinking about like football uh, analogies. Here, it's halftime. So, right when it's uh, when you're at the uh, intermission, uh, does and everybody leaves. Does Yannick call everybody over like a coach and say, "French horns, there, you screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go out there and play." Uh, Is there any communication during the intermission, or they just go all off on their uh, own? Ways? They all go off on their own. Sometimes there's a little congregation at the end of the night. Okay. Uh, especially if there are remaining concerts, to say, "Oh, you know, that thing happened. Let's talk about what we can do differently tomorrow night." Okay. Um, but I think by Saturday, when it's usually the final performance, everyone says, "Oh my God, okay, we did it. We don't need to." go through it again so yeah before uh, we let you go Amy I know you have to go in just a couple minutes here to get ready for my uh, entrance at 730 (laughs) Um, what is the biggest most complicated thing you've had to manage uh, in terms of a uh, of an actual concert Um, I would say when I first started which was in March of last year um, one of the first things that everyone brought to me was we were doing a concert with John Williams Mm -hmm. and we ended up deciding to put uh, screens for everybody to be able to see. And in order to do that with conductor circle, you know, the the seating that's behind the stage, we had to have screens that were back to back. Okay. Um, Hmm. So that we had a screen showing everybody and we used LEDs so it was bright enough and and the lights. And so I would say my job really gets more difficult. You know, like tonight's performance, we're doing West Side Story. We put risers together and staging and and we put down Red Marley, which, you know, colors the stage and rented chairs and and all of that stuff. So anytime there's additional elements added in, it's not a straightforward program. Mm -hmm. um, My week Mm -hmm. really gets a little bit more busy. And and one more on that. uh, The most people you've had up there. On Ooh. stage, because uh, yeah. I certainly remember some choral things where the place seemed to be absolutely full. Yeah. Orchestra and everybody. What's your just your guess is the m- number of people who have been up there oh, performing? Gosh. I see, I, I want to say Malarate is one of the biggest 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 pieces I've been here for. Okay. Um, and you know sometimes that can be up to a hundred plus people in the choir plus uh, over a hundred people on stage. Yeah. Ooh, so you know you're looking big. at two two fifty, um, and the house seats twenty four hundred. So. Um, as long as we're not outnumbered, I feel yeah, like we're doing that's okay. pretty good. And last question from our producer here: What's the heaviest thing you've had to lift? Oh, I'm not allowed. The unions won't let me. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. very good. That's true here too. Yeah, yeah it's true so here. Good. Yeah. See, our our producers fine. come and lift the headphones on us. They, they yeah. place them on us before I'm sorry, the show. You can't touch that. <laughs> you can't yeah. touch that. That's right. In fact, I'm not going to be able to hang up the phone. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Well, Amy, we should let you go. Good luck tonight. Pleasure Great. to have you with us today. Amy Kurzban is the creative director of operations for the Philly. Philadelphia Orchestra, filling us in on what goes on behind the scenes at the orchestra. Uh, Dan, I, w- I was kind of hoping it was a little like football, you know, that during the intermission they get yelled at. They yeah. each go to the oboe coaches and yeah. the woodwind coaches. And Percussion, they... you're playing too fast. <laughs> right. Slow down for the rest of us. <laughs> <I know. laughs> there you go. And there would be the uh, percussion. percussion yeah. I wanted to ask Amy what she thought of our gong and whether she thought she had something else like a timpani that might be, be yeah. good. But I think we're going to... We're going to stick with the gong. Yeah, there's here, no historical timpani show. That's true. That's it true. It means so little to so few people. Yeah. I wonder how many of our listeners remember the gong show. There's a new gong show on. Oh, is there I've really? I've never seen it. but No kidding. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, I, I think we're we're losing everyone under the age of 50 unless we explain it. Okay. So the gong show was, you want to explain? Was a mid to early 70s. Daytime show, half yes. hour in length, hosted by a guy named Chuck Barris. Who is from Philadelphia. Oh, is he? Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
He later claimed to be a CIA agent. The CIA I, says, we don't comment on those things, but we'll make an exception. He was not a CIA did, agent. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. He said but, he was an assassin, actually. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, uh, but the gong show was unique in that it had the series of lame judges who had, mm-hmm. it was like a talent show, except he like, had no talent. Like uh, America Got Talent. Exactly. Except these except, were people who were supposed to not have talent. <laughs> yeah. And then Gene Gene the Dancing Machine, who was <laughs> yes, a backstage right. guy who just <laughs> shuffled shimmy on through. <laughs> It was actually it was a groundbreaking format because yes, it was so it was. zany. Yeah, and so they had bad performers come out, and if you were really really bad, they would hit the gong. Yeah, they would. Right, and so that's the hence the gong here. Yes, in Philadelphia, which is only used on again twice. It's only used on me. Yeah, that's true. That's true, uh, folks. We should probably take a break at this point, and we're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to talk with Jenny Dearborn, who's a chief learning officer at SAP, the big IT company. And we're going to talk about big data, people analytics in the workplace, how you might make better use of data in order to figure out how to be a better manager. So hang in there. We'll be right back in just a couple. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 